Chapter 1 of A History of California, the Spanish Period. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1 The Effects of Geography Upon California History. The land, California, was not always as it is today. Numerous evidences, such as seashells found on mountains, make it clear that many thousands of years ago it was underwater. Later, it seems to have been a tropical land. Remains of gigantic prehistoric animals, which could only have lived in such a clime, have recently been found in the celebrated Lake of Tar at the Hancock or La Brea Ranch near Los Angeles. Doubtless, too, the land had a very different shape from what it now has, and indeed many writers have held that San Francisco Bay is of comparatively recent formation. Their argument is based on the fact that no white man seems to have seen the bay prior to its discovery by the Portola expedition of 1769, although the rest of the coast had been fairly well known for over 200 years. In particular, the English navigator Francis Drake had made a stop of about a month a few miles north of where the bay now is most assuredly located, and appears not to have learned of its existence even though he made a journey inland. Since nobody saw the bay, and since it was such a remarkable bay that it was at least an odd chance that it alone should have remained undiscovered, and since above all California is known to have suffered earthquakes in the past, why therefore, say these writers, the bay did not exist, but was produced by an earthquake at some time between 1759 and 1769. It may be remarked that this theory has been advanced most prominently since the California earthquake of 1906. Furthermore, it is easy to account for the failure of navigators to see the bay. The winding character of that body of water and the position of Angel Island in the direct line of the Golden Gate or entrance to the bay make it difficult of recognition from the sea, to say nothing of the fogs which so frequently hide that coast from view. Finally, there is no necessary reason why Drake's journey inland, the length of which is not indicated in his account, should have taken him to a place where he could have seen the bay if it existed. Present-day automobilists will not fail to remember that there are some not inconsiderable hills between Drake's landing place in San Francisco and, besides, vast areas of forest. But if the great western port owes its existence to an earthquake, what an extraordinary cataclysm it must have been! How tiny a tremble in comparison was that other event of 1906! And what a beneficent stroke of nature for California and the Pacific coast! Footnote. Whether or not the Bay of San Francisco was produced by an earthquake, there was at least a tradition among the Indians to the effect that the bay did not formerly exist. In describing a trip that he made north of the bay in 1819, Father President Mariano Payeras said that the body of water was, in ancient times, according to the tradition of the old men, an oak forest with no other water than that of a river which was passed on foot. In proof of this tradition, they say that there are still found trunks and roots of oaks in the port and in the strait. In footnote. 
All of these matters are of little, if any, concern, however, as affecting the history of California, and so, too, the possibility, sometimes referred to, that a new continent may be expected to rise up in the Pacific, making the Golden State an inland country many thousands of years hence. For the purposes of history, the geography of California may be considered in the light of what it now is. Numerous mountain chains course through the state, running generally north and south and separated from one another by narrow valleys, except for the one long and broad valley which is the most striking characteristic of central California. The coasts are rough and high, offering few good ports, and indeed only one first-rank natural port. Communications by land with the outside world were difficult, for where unusually high mountain ranges did not intervene, there occurred the vast desert spaces in the south. Thus, California, with its best port hidden, remained for centuries in a state of isolation from the rest of the world. Even after the white man came, there was little in California in its natural state upon which he could live. The fruits for which the state is now so famous did not exist formerly, and there were no fields of grain or herds of domestic animals. The land was inhabited by Indians, but of so wretched a type that they were unable to produce anything suited to the needs of white men, or even to serve acceptably as laborers. Manufactured articles of the kind that white men used were, of course, entirely lacking. Little wonder, then, that Gaspar de Portola, commander of the Spanish expedition of 1769, should say that if the Russians wanted California, he would let them have it. In his mind, such a gift seemed a meet punishment for the sins of their aggressive imperialism. Economically backward, as California undoubtedly was, it is hardly necessary to say that she had abundant natural resources, such as fertile soil, rich grasslands, and belts of timber, plentiful water from the mountain snows, a variety of metals, including, most important of all from the standpoint of history, an extraordinary wealth in gold. And not least of all, California had an exceptionally agreeable climate. If the white man could contrive to get there, found permanent settlements, and establish communications with the outside world, the future would take care of itself. Granted California's economic potentialities, the most important geographical fact bearing upon her history was the location of the land with respect to the rest of the world. If California could have been placed in Western or Central Europe, it would undoubtedly have been one of the most populous lands of the earth. But California was, in fact, very far from the centers of white civilization. Indeed, almost the farthest distant point of the earth. When we consider the routes which necessarily had to be followed before men could reach the Pacific shores of North America. Furthermore, there were difficulties in getting there and staying, besides which the much better-known hardships of the pilgrims of Plymouth Rock pale into insignificance. To reach California from Europe, a sea voyage was necessary. Although it might be broken by a journey on land, the shortest route by sea, whether along the coast of Asia or of North America, was by way of the North Pole, but this way was impracticable, in fact. 
a long voyage around South America, or a much longer voyage around Africa and beyond Asia, might take one directly by sea from Europe to California. Land routes necessitated the journey across North America or Asia. The difficulties of the sea routes to California, even for such comparatively short stretches as the voyage from western New Spain or Mexico, were due primarily to the length of the voyage. Down to the close of the 18th century, ships were small and frail. Boats of 500 tons were considered large, while transoceanic voyages were not infrequently made by ships of 50. Compared with such monsters as the 27,000-ton steamers on which travelers of recent years have crossed the Pacific, it will be seen at once that the vessels of the past had their limitations, accentuated, too, by a lack of the advanced notions about shipbuilding which obtain in the world today. Nautical science had not yet gone far along other lines, either. Men did not know how to calculate longitude, except by a system called dead reckoning, which reduced itself to guessing, and instruments were so imperfect that the latitudes found were rarely correct. The calculations for the California coast were usually over a hundred miles too high. Furthermore, the Pacific Ocean was not well known. Few charts existed, and none were accurate. Rocks, shoals, currents, coasts, and winds too frequently appeared where least expected, with the result that shipwreck was one of the ordinary perils of a voyage. Only a sailor can appreciate the terror of uncharted seas. To this was added the terrific storms of the ill-named Pacific. Pacific, indeed, it often is in the far south where Magellan entered it, but assuredly he would have given another name, perhaps the exact opposite, could he have experienced the gales of the north. In the words of the Italian traveler Germelli Carreri, who made the voyage from Manila to Alcapulco in 1697 to 1698, the Spaniards and other geographers have given this the name of the Pacific Sea, but it does not suit with its tempestuous and dreadful notion, for which it ought rather to be called the restless. Particularly, it was difficult for vessels beating up the coast since they had to buffet against the ocean current as well as encounter the winds. Those who at the present time have made the voyage between San Francisco and Los Angeles appreciate the difference between going down and coming up. Other and yet more terrible factors combined to make the voyage to such a distant land as California little better than a sentence of death. Possibly worst of all was the dread disease of the scurvy. This disease, resulting from a lack of fresh fruits and vegetables, baffled medical science down to the close of the 18th century. Other ills there were in greater proportion than now, but the deaths from scurvy alone in a voyage from Europe into the Pacific might range from 40 to 75 percent. Casualties were not infrequently quite as great for the short voyage from New Spain to California, it is no wonder that men were sometimes driven on board ship at the point of a bayonet and compelled to go there. To be sure, there were usually many others who were willing to go because of the enormous wealth which, in some mysterious way, they hoped to acquire.
Once arrived in California, the troubles of the would-be settler were only just begun. There was nothing in the land that could provide a regular food supply, wherefore he must bring with him all that he was going to consume. If the voyage had been long, the chances were that there would be little more than enough remaining for the return. It was impossible to stay unless there might be a sure resort for more, and this inevitably necessitated a base of supplies reasonably near at hand. Moreover, there was nothing easily obtainable in California that could serve as an article of exchange. Cortes and Pizarro had found vast quantities of ready-made wealth in Mexico and Peru, but there was nothing of the sort in California. Thus, colonies could be maintained only at great expense, and governments were poor and disinclined to spend money except for a definitely recognizable return. Not until the late 18th century did European countries display a willingness to finance explorations and colonization for scientific objects, and even then there was usually the ulterior motive of imperialistic design. Yet, for strategic reasons, Spain endeavored during more than two centuries to occupy the Californias from Cape San Lucas to the north, and after her extraordinary efforts had, at length, achieved success, she at her own expense supported the colonies of the northern coast, which otherwise must have failed. Those who would make the journey to California by land encountered difficulties which, until the close of the 18th century, were perhaps greater than those of the voyage by sea. There were the same problems of the immense distance to be traversed, including lack of information, scurvy, insufficient supplies, and the lack of an article of exchange, just as in the case of the routes by sea. In addition, there were hostile intervening peoples to be considered. A small party might conceivably have carried supplies enough to cross what is now the United States, but would almost certainly have succumbed to the Indians. A large party might defeat the Indians, but could not carry sufficient food. Thus faced by the dilemma of a violent death or starvation, it is no wonder that the Atlantic coast pioneers did not reach the Pacific until the frontier of settlement had been pushed many hundreds of miles to the west. Furthermore, there were the actual geographic difficulties of great mountain chains, wide deserts, and undeveloped lands, making the discovery of a practicable route a problem in itself of no mean proportions. A study of the factors just referred to makes it clear that under normal conditions, California could be occupied and held only through development of an advancing base of supplies, that is, through the settlement of intervening lands, until a point were reached near enough to assure the settlers of readily accessible relief for their necessities. Such a development was bound to be slow, requiring centuries for its completion, unless peculiar or extraordinary circumstances should arise to make nations or individuals desirous of overcoming the great obstacles in the way. Strategic reasons impelled Spain to hasten her northward colonization to include California, an even more rapid settlement would surely have occurred if California's vast wealth in precious metals had become known. 
for that would have given an exceptionally alluring economic reason for individual effort. The history of California down to 1848, therefore, reduces itself to this. Those nations which approached by land would in normal course have the best opportunity of getting a foothold because of the advantage of an advancing base of supplies. The first comer would not necessarily retain the land, for if it proved desirable it might eventually be taken over by a stronger power. California was eminently desirable, for it contained wealth in gold and a good port on the Pacific as original inducements, with eventual possibilities of a greater and varied character. The United States had the best opportunity, under normal conditions, for she was geographically better located than her rivals for a solid advance from base to base by land, even better than Spain and her successor, Mexico, who held the province by a thin and precarious line of communications, besides which Mexico was so weak that she could not have retained the land in any event. The history of California proved to be, therefore, an interesting race between the development of the United States and the discovery of California's gold. Had the discovery come many years earlier than it did, some other great power might have acquired California and the entire Pacific coast, or it might have become a Hispanic American republic, thus delaying or perhaps altogether preventing the opportunity of the United States to obtain frontage on the Western Ocean. Most of the great peoples of the earth advanced by sea or land toward the Californias. Chronologically considered, they were the Indians who were on the ground at the dawn of California history, the Chinese, Spaniards, English, Japanese, Dutch, Russians, Portuguese, French, and Americans. The prize fell eventually to the powers which came by land. Thus the peoples of Spain, England, France, and Russia began approaches which in the hands of their successors, Mexico, the United States, England, and Canada, and the United States again in Alaska, resulted in the acquisition of all the old Californias, stretching from Cape San Lucas indefinitely northward to the end of the North America. The achievements of each one of these peoples will be taken up, or at least alluded to, but the major share of attention belongs properly to the Spaniards, who discovered and settled California, and to the Americans who developed it into the great state of the American Union, which it undoubtedly is today. End of chapter 1